Hi there, and welcome to Truth Be Told. Thank you very much for listening in. Really appreciate you joining us today. We are joined by an awesome guest. He is a professor at the Houston Baptist University for 30 years now, and he's also contributed to many publications like the Gospel Coalition, and we're just so excited to talk to Professor Louis Marcos. Mr. Marcos, how are you doing today? My name is Lou Marcos, M-A-R-K-O-S. I'm actually Greek. All four of my grandparents were born in Greece. So when I teach ancient Greece, these are my relatives. Uh, and I'm a professor of English, scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University. I'm in my 31st year. I went to Colgate, upstate New York, University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, my specialty that I did, you know, the PhD are the Romantic and Victorian poets, but I also do anything to do with ancient Greece and Rome. I love the epics, Homer, Virgil, Dante, Milton. And of course, I get to teach C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. So kind of in rotation, class on Chronicles of Narnia, class on the Lord of the Rings, and I also do a class on Lewis's apologetics, mere Christianity, miracles, problem of pain. Love doing all this sort of stuff. Uh, been here. Uh, uh, what, what is my big thing? My big uh, my vision, if anything, I share with the university, it's to bring Athens and Jerusalem together. What does that mean? Athens means our Greco-Roman sort of pagan pre-Christian legacy, and Jerusalem is our Judeo-Christian legacy. And how do we bring those together to give a classical Christian education that begins with Homer and goes to today. And we believe that all truth is God's truth and that we can learn truth from pagan writers. I've written a book called From Achilles to Christ, Why Christians Read the Pagan Classics, uh, The Myth-Made Fact, why, uh, How Greeks, uh, you know, Reading Greek Mythology Through Christian Eyes, and From Plato to Christ. So my passion is, and this was C.S. Lewis's and J.R.R. Tolkien's passion, is to learn all of that truth, both in the Christian and Jewish writers, and also the pre-Christian writers, whom I believe, as they did, God used them to prepare the ancient world for the coming of Christ. And hopefully we'll talk about that more. Yeah, this is a lot of what we're going to be talking about today. And I'm so excited to be talking about it because, personally, I love Lewis and Tolkien, but I also love all of the other writers you mentioned, Virgil, Homer, things like this. And I think, though, within Christian circles or many Christian circles, at least conservative Christian circles, um, there's a hesitance, right, to go into some of these writers because they come with pagan backgrounds. That's a lot of what we're going to go into today. But then with Lewis and Tolkien, there's a bit of an acceptance with them because Lewis, you know, famed apologist, yep. uh, Tolkien brought him essentially to or convinced him right. of the truth of Christianity. And so... They're kind of accepted within conservative Christian cultures, but even so, there's still some pushback. You know, I think it's like we have a hierarchy of literature where it's like the yeah. Bible, and then it's maybe Josephus, and then fiction's all the way down on the end. So, for those people that are a little bit skeptical, how would you defend the use of specifically Lewis and Tolkien? We'll go into other writers as well in just a bit, but specifically Lewis and Tolkien uh, for gaining biblical understanding. Thank you, because, you know, a lot of people were suspicious of Lewis and Tolkien because they wrote fantasy. And there's this, ah, fantasy's evil, you know, Harry Potter's evil, and all that sort of stuff. Right. And the trouble is that a lot of times, and again, I'm, I'm speaking as a Baptist or evangelical, a lot of times evangelicals, we say we're against fantasy, and we think we're against fantasy because we're Christians. But what we don't understand, Micah, is that the real reason we're against fantasy is because we're Enlightenment modernists, but we don't know it. 
We have bought into the enlightenment lie. It's sometimes called the enlightenment split. There is faith on this side and reason, right? There is uh, logic on one side and emotion on the other. There is uh, history and there's myth. There's facts and there's values. And we, and we don't cross them over, mm-hmm. right? So we have this idea that if we turn to fantasy, we're therefore turning to fiction, which means lies, which is against the truth. And we forget that our book, the Bible, uses almost every kind of genre there is, including fictional genres, like poetry, but even more importantly, Jesus did most of his teaching through parables. Mm -hmm. And parables are short stories that are not true. There wasn't literally a man who had two sons, right? That is a story Jesus is constructing, but to teach an eternal and universal message. And Lewis and Tolkien, I mean, they really shock Christians because they speak of Christianity as a true myth. What does that mean? It's true because it actually happened historically at a real time and a real place under Pontius Pilate. But it's a myth because it speaks to a deep side of us, to a sort of yearning for goodness, truth, and beauty. Myths are there to answer questions. What is the origin? Why am I here? What is my purpose? What is the destiny towards which we're going? And so the story of Jesus is a myth in the sense that it answers those big questions, but it also happens to be true. For a lot of people, that's an oxymoron. True myth? What are you talking about? No, they can be. And again, it's we think that not because we're Christians, but because we've bought into the Enlightenment rationalism that wants to separate the two into different compartments, and never the twain shall meet. Mm-hmm. And Lewis and Tolkien come along, and they help us access or reaccess our sense of wonder, our sense of beauty, our sense of awe. It appeals to every part of us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But what about your imagination? <laughs> what about your sense of wonder that they speak to us? And Lewis is particularly amazing because he can write an argument, a logical, apologetical argument, like liar, lunatic, or lord, and then he can incarnate that in the line, the witch, in the wardrobe, and make it part of a story, and then we understand it almost in a deeper way. And Lewis could do both. Tolkien does both, too, but Lewis particularly, because Lewis specifically wrote uh, uh, apologetics, so we can match the two up. But Tolkien is, you know, the Lord of the Rings, he said, is a very specifically Christian, particularly Catholic. He was a strong believing Catholic work, and it's there, but it's so deeply in the weave that we might not recognize it. But it is presenting a Christian worldview. Right. And I I love that you brought up parables as well, because I've heard you speak on that before. I've heard you even mention that Tolkien writes in kind of a parable way, even though the whole thing isn't parable, the whole thing is an allegory. Right. And with that, I think uh, we're a step closer to understanding that maybe using someone else's work to understand the truths of Christianity isn't wrong. See, you know? see Micah, we're, we're not only children of the Enlightenment without realizing it. We're children of Romanticism, which comes just after the Enlightenment. And the Romantics, and I teach her, I love the Romantics, Wordsworth, Coleridge, Byron, Shelley, Kisilla, but they were the ones that started coming up with this idea that the be-all and end-all of art and writing is creativity and absolute originality. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And not what anybody believed before then. So I want you to think about it. Virgil's Aeneid, Dante's Divine Comedy, Milton's Paradise Lost. Mm-hmm. Those three books are, at the same time, the most derivative books ever written. In other words, everything in that book can be traced back to something else. Mm-hmm. But at the exact same time, they're the most radically creative books ever written. That's weird to our mind. But yes, we learn and we tradition is a Latin word that means to hand down. Lewis once said, you know, there's nothing radically original in my work. Everything, especially in his apologetics, can be traced back to something in Plato or Aristotle or Augustine or Aquinas or Boethius. He's not trying to be a rip. But mm. when you are faithful to the tradition, you'll find out that you're often more original than someone who's trying to be original and is mm. working in a void. We study what came before, and we pass down that legacy, and we add to it. So that Jesus says, I come not to break the law, but to fulfill it. Mm-hmm. So when you when you look at C.S. Lewis or J.R.R. Tolkien, and you can see that some of what they did almost exemplified something that Christ did by telling stories to outline outline truths, but still people, uh, again, there's an acceptance of those two, but then if you go yeah. deeper than that to pagan writers, still people will, yeah. will push back and say, uh, I don't know about that. And I, I understand in a way, um, you, you do have to be careful, you have to be discerning, but is there any maybe advice you could give to people or... Um, any push you could give to people to say, no, this stuff has good in it. There, There's good virtue we can learn from this, as we'll talk about in just a minute. Let's start by uh, uh, talking about a story that you sort of already alluded to, that it was Tolkien that partly led Lewis to faith in Christ. Mm-hmm. Now, again, most of your listeners know that Lewis was an atheist for a long time. But a lot of people think that Lewis was like Chuck Colson or Lee Strobel or Josh McDowell, who went directly from atheism to Christianity. Mm-hmm. That Lewis's story. About the age of 30, Lewis became a theist, a believer in God, but it took him another year and a half to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. What was holding him back from faith in Christ? Interestingly, uh, okay, everybody listening probably counts C.S. Lewis as a role model. I'm lucky because he's a double role model because I'm also an English professor, right? And like Lewis, I love and I teach mythology. Lewis loved Greco-Roman, Norse, Egyptian, all of it, right? Mm -hmm. He was a big fan of a book called The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser, written in the late 19th century. And it's kind of like the, the, the 19th century version of Joseph Campbell, which, of course, really influenced the Star Wars trilogy. Mm-hmm. Because those books are what we call cultural anthropology or comparative anthropology, where you look at all the ancient tribal people, you look at their myths, you look at their legends, you look at their stories, and you're trying to find connections, right? You look for archetypes, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why the original trilogy is so good is it's filled with characters who appear throughout. So so Luke Skywalker is what they call the the foundling, right? The the, the poor guy that, and and, and Darth Vader is a type, and then the siblings are a type, and, and Han Solo is a type. Well, this guy, Frazier, discerned a certain archetype, a certain recurring pattern that you see across all the pagan nations, and he called it the corn king. And all the myths have these stories of a god or a demigod who sort of comes to earth, sort of son of the gods. He lives, he often dies a violent death, and then he's reborn. Now, it's not a literal resurrection. What it is is the seasonal cycle of life, death, and rebirth. So in Egypt, they call him Osiris. Uh, in Greece, they call him Adonis or Bacchus. The Norsemen call him Balder. The Persians call him Mithras. The uh, 
Babylonians call him Tammuz, right? It's this recurring story. And Lewis said, well, what do I care about you know, the Jewish version of the corn king? What do I care about a rabbi who died 2,000 years ago? What, what does it have to do with me? And then Tolkien said the words, and that's the words of my new book, changed his life. He said, Lewis Jack was his nickname. Did you ever think maybe the reason that Jesus sounds like a myth is that he was the myth that became fact, the myth that came true? So all of us were made in God's image. God put in us a desire that's across the nations, right? He didn't, I mean, he only spoke to the Jews directly before Christ came, but he didn't ignore all the Gentiles. Mm -hmm. He spoke to them through what's called general revelation, through their reason, through creation, through their imagination. He spoke to them. And in all these other cultures, that desire manifested it in these myths that are often very bloody. But guess what? Wouldn't it make sense that when the God who created all of us, when he came into the world to enact our salvation, look, Micah, Jesus fulfilled all the Old Testament law and prophets. But if that's all he did, then he would be the Messiah of the Jews, but not the king of the universe and the Messiah of the Gentiles. But when he died and rose in Palestine all those years ago, he also fulfilled the highest yearnings of the pagan peoples. And so he is also the corn king, but he's the myth that became fact, right? I already alluded to the important theological distinction between special revelation. That's the way God speaks directly through the Old and New Testament, through the Jewish prophets, supremely through Christ himself. Mm -hmm. He also speaks through general revelation. He speaks through creation. He speaks through reason. He speaks through our conscience. He speaks through our imagination and our yearnings and desires. And so, again, he did not ignore the Gentiles, but he spoke to them in a generic way. And a lot of what Jesus, a lot of what God spoke to them finds its manifestation in the great philosophy of Plato, the poetry of Homer, the poetry of Virgil, in Aristotle and in Cicero, and in the great myths that encapsulate the yearnings and desires of the nations. Mm -hmm. And that's why not only Jewish shepherds, but pagan magi come to the Christ child and find fulfillment in him. It's so cool. I think it was so hard writing questions for this interview because half of me, half of me just wanted to nerd out with you on the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lord of the Rings, the Silmarillion even. But half of me is like, no, 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 this is a theology and apologetics podcast. We have to get both. So we, I, both I, I, we do. I appreciate everything you're bringing to this. Um, but it's it's really cool. I think you kind of come at this from the perspective that the world started with God and two people in the Garden of Eden. There was There was good. There was truth. And then over time, that truth became perverted or twisted or uh, diminished, lost in people's minds, but that we started with truth. Sometimes I think we often will think, okay, Satan, the father of lies, he will put truth into his lies in order to uh, make you misunderstand or something like that. But rather, it's he's perverting the truth that's already there. So we Good. see some of these pagan writers, and rather than thinking of them like many people do as evil that Satan allowed a little bit of truth into, you kind of view it more as God preserved an element of truth throughout time for all people, and you find that truth throughout all of their writings. 
And I think that's a that's a really interesting perspective. It, you know, it's there because you know Augustine is the one that helped us to understand. Fancy phrase: evil is privation, privation or negation or lack. So sin is not a positive thing. Mm-hmm. Sin takes a good thing created by God and perverts it mm-hmm. or twists it. All of the pleasures were created by God. The devil cannot create a single pleasure. All he can do is take the pleasures God made and convince us to use them in the wrong way, at the wrong time, with the wrong person, to the wrong degree. Right. right? But there still is going to be a seed of truth there. People speak as if we've lost the image of God, and we have not. Mm-hmm. It's per- we, that's why we now need the touchstone of Scripture. I can study paganism and learn from it because, thank God, I have the measuring rod, the measure stick of Christ and the New Testament, mm-hmm. the Bible, that I can measure it against. But again, we we have not lost the image of God. We can still reach out, and we are capable of virtuous behavior. Not virtuous behavior that will save us, but virtuous. Look, what other way to read it than the, the story of Cornelius? That is the centurion in Acts chapter 10, mm-hmm. who a God-fearing Gentile, right? He is not a Jew, but he is practicing virtue, and God notices him. Now, God doesn't save him because of his virtue, but God sends the gospel to him via Peter, and he accepts it, and then he's saved. But God seems to be pleased by the virtuous acts of this pagan, hmm. as he clearly is uh, in, the, in the story of, of the centurion in, in Luke now. When he goes to the centurion, the centurion says, my servant is dying. Lord, will you heal him? And, and Jesus says, okay, let's go. No, 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 no. I am not worthy to have you under my roof. But listen, I am a man under authority, and there are people that are under my authority. And I recognize that you are a man of authority, and all you need to do is give the word, and it will be done. And Jesus, it says, Jesus was blown away at the direct translation of the Greek. There's only two times when it says Jesus was amazed. One time is by the lack of faith mm. of the people of Nazareth. The other time is this pagan centurion, and Jesus says, I have not found such faith among the children of Israel. And he is pleased. With the centurion. That doesn't mean the centurion's virtue saves him. Salvation is only through Christ. But Jesus seems to notice and he seems to be pleased. Mm-hmm. Wonderful thing. <laughs> I like that you mentioned it. We have this touch point with people of other nations that, you know, as, as we look back at these people that wrote some of these writings that are incredible literary works, but also valuable to us if we study them. You, you mentioned a touch point, and it's it's so important because it, for those that are still maybe a little bit skeptical, you can see Paul using some of paganism and using the touch points of truth that they have to then evangelize to them later when he goes and uh, speaks at Athens. I see that you're very religious. This is great. This part yeah. you have. Now, let me explain. Let me clear some cobwebs that you have. Let me, you know, put you on the road towards absolute truth that... But he, he uses a touch point that, you know, we can kind of have. And I think I think looking to some of these writers can actually be, rather than something that, that kind of scares us a little bit or makes us think, oh, I don't want to get led off into these pagan ideologies, we could see it as a way uh, to gain these touch points for 
explaining the gospel to other people around the world. You ever read uh, anything by Don Richardson? He wrote The Peace Child, and he wrote Eternity in Their Hearts. He was right. a, a missionary, died about five years ago. He was a missionary down in, what's that place called? Uh, Papua New Guinea. Mm -hmm. And he said, as a missionary, he looked for, this was his phrase, redemptive analogies. If you look hard enough, you're going to find something, a seed in their group that can be used as a bridge to the gospel. Because God has not left himself without witness. He said, of the righteous and the unrighteous. That's another thing Paul says. Mm -hmm. Acts, right? uh, I believe the entire Greco-Roman world was waiting to hear Paul say in Acts at the Areopagus, Mars Hill, now therefore, what you have worshipped in ignorance, I will proclaim to you as known. Mm -hmm. And he goes on to talk about uh, God leading up to the resurrection. Right? But they, they listen. We need to find that bridge. Will, I wrote a book called From Plato to Christ. I hope there's some Chinese dude writing a book called From Confucius to Christ. <laughs> so let's find some truths in there that can be a bridge. Mm -hmm. Again, we are not saying that the pagans were saved by their limited wisdom, mm -hmm. but these were good things, right? Uh, the, the way the medievals used to talk about it, they talked about the seven virtues. And I wrote a book called On the Shoulders of Hobbits, The Road to Virtue with Tolkien and Lewis, published by Moody Press. Moody Press would not have published that book 10 years ago. It's all about <laughs> fantasy and all that stuff. Come on, right? Even University might not have published my From Achilles to Christ right. and Plato to Christ maybe 30 years ago. Um, but anyway, the 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 um, um, I just lost my, my, my point. What was On my point? On the shoulders of hobbits, you were talking about virtue. I, 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 yeah, I, I spend a chap, uh, seven chapters on the seven virtues. And what's the difference between the four classical virtues and the three theological virtues? The classical virtues are courage and wisdom or prudence and justice and temperance. The theological virtues are faith, hope, and love or faith, hope, and charity. Now, what are these classical virtues? Those virtues, they believed in the Middle Ages, were virtues that the pagans, the higher pagans, Aristotle, Plato, uh, Cicero. The Stoics. The Stoics, good. Uh, Marcus Aurelius. These are virtues that they had access to through general revelation. It didn't need the special revelation of Christ in the Bible. They were able to achieve them, approximate them. Mm -hmm. But the three, faith, hope, and love, they were awaiting special revelation. Now, that doesn't mean the Greeks didn't have words for faith, hope, and love, but the full understanding of those virtues really awaited the special revelation right. of the New Testament but they still could practice virtue. If you read the earliest of the uh, apologists, like Justin Martyr, many of them looked upon Socrates as a martyr, not exactly a martyr for Christ, but a martyr for truth. They are trying to move beyond pagan pantheism towards one God, and they went as far as they could without the direct special revelation of Christ. But he saw him as a martyr. He died for truth, for the one truth. And 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 they took and you know they they had no problem using words like logos and theos, mm -hmm. which are words that kind of go back to Plato. But notice, Micah, they didn't use the word Zeus. That word was too corrupted. You can't do that. There's too much corruption. Sure. But a word like word logos, a rich meaning word like we can use that and take it up into the fullness of meaning, as Paul does at the Areopagus. Right. And, and so in that book, On the Shoulders of Hobbits, I absolutely loved it. I thought it was a fantastic book. But you talk in the beginning about some of these virtues being lost over time, or we, we just don't 
have a handle on them as much as we did. So could you maybe talk a little bit about how we could possibly reclaim some of these virtues, you know, maybe yeah. from looking into the elements of story or looking into some of these myths. Um, I think people know how to uh, read the Bible and see the good things right. we're supposed to do. But from the perspective of looking at these myths or these stories from pagan writers, how can we use these? Or even Lewis and Tolkien. I, I think you mentioned in your book, um, or maybe it was on an interview, where Aragorn goes to the gates of Mordor and he is about to have this epic battle. And every time you read it, you feel this this pride in your chest at what he's about to do. And you, you never get tired of reading that part yeah. because there's valor there. There's nobility. And so could you talk a little bit about that, about reclaiming virtue for, for these Peter Jackson, they, you know, they did add a lot of lines mm-hmm. and most of them added a good, yeah. that whole speech someday the you know, race of men may fall, but that day is not today. That speech is actually, uh, but it's absolutely true to the spirit of Tolkien. Okay. My book on the shoulders of hobbits, the whole point is until very recently, the way you taught virtue and passed it down to your children was through stories now, you've probably heard of this guy named uh, Bill Bennett. He was the Secretary of Education, and he wrote a wonderful book. It's a good 30 years ago now, called The Book of Virtues, in which he took different virtues and illustrated them with stories from the Bible, from Greek and Roman mythology, from Roman history, all of that. And everybody was amazed by that. Now, if he wrote that book 100 years ago, people would have said, duh, that's what we all do. That's how it's done. Well, you know, The best example in America is, how did you teach kids honesty? by teaching them the story of George Washington, the cherry tree. Mm-hmm. Historians say, that, oh, that's not true, but it doesn't make a difference. That story tells us that what we value or used to value in America is honesty. There's, I remember a story I was told as a kid that um, when um, a young Abraham Lincoln was working at a store and somebody ran off and left without their one penny change, and he like ran miles to catch up to him <laughs> to give him his proper change, this idea of honesty and integrity. Uh, as something that Americans used to value. And you teach them through stories, through myths. If you want to teach your children, look, if you want to teach your children that it's bad to lie, you can run them through Kant's categorical imperative and give them all sorts of logical, rational reasons. Or you can just teach them the story of the boy who cried wolf. Any kid that's heard that story enough, they know, oh, I remember my son trying to save that poor boy from the wolves. I said, no, no, he got eaten, right? But <laughs> that's a teacher because it embodies or incarnates the importance of virtue and the dangers of vice and what it leads to. Now, let, let me make this very American, okay? George Washington very, um, what's the word? very consciously patterned himself after one of the heroes of the Roman Republic a man named Cincinnatus. In fact, he came to be called the American Cincinnati. This is a story some people doubt whether it's true. No reason to doubt it, I think. Way back in the beginning of the Roman Republic, uh, they had two presidents, councils, they called them. But if there was a state of emergency where Rome was in danger, they could choose someone to be a dictator for six months and have complete power to fix things up, right? Okay. And the Romans were being attacked by a, a foreign invader. They were always being attacked. And they went to Cincinnati, their greatest general. And when they came to him, he was working at the plow. And he was, you know, plowing a furrow in the field. And they said, Cincinnati, Rome needs you. Become our dictator. So he put down the plow. He put on his armor. He went and he saved Rome. 
Now, everybody loved him so much that he could have easily tried to make himself dictator for life, which is what Julius Caesar did, got him killed. Uh, instead, he said no. He went back to his plow. He literally picked it up where he left it and continued his furrow. And this talks about good citizenship, that you put Rome above your own personal ambition. And of course, George Washington had the chance. He probably could have been the next king, the first King George of America. And he said, no, like Cincinnatus, I am going to abdicate that power. And he gave us the rule only two terms, only hmm. broken once by FDR because it was during the war. All right. Give me another example from Texas, my home state now. I, I've been here more than half my life, so I'm a Texan. All of those guys that died at the Alamo were absolutely conscious of the fact that they were the new 300 Spartans mm. dying at Thermopylae. They knew it. I mean, they knew what they were doing, right? They didn't even have to see that crazy movie, um, <laughs> 300, right? Uh, and the terrible remake, the, the sequel. Don't even, don't even think about it. Least, the first movie was good. Just don't let your kids watch it. Right. It was um, but the the they were conscious of that. They learned from that. You you wanted to, I want to teach my son that you need to have moderation. The best way to do it. And, and the first story I tell in my book from uh, I mean a myth made fact is the story of Daedalus Nicarus. Right, Daedalus Nicarus were trapped in this prison that overlooked a mountain down to the sea. The only way they could escape was by flying. And so Daedalus, the great artificer of the ancient world, created wings. Right, and he put some on his son and some on. He said, Icarus, now listen. Do not fly too low, or the, 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 the sea will make your, your wings heavy and drag you down. But don't fly too high, or the sun will melt the wax, the feathers will fall off, and you'll die. And he forgot his father's good advice. He flew too high. The, melt, the, the, the wax melted. He watched one by one the feathers, and he plummeted to the sea and died. This is a good way to teach people the importance of temperance or self-control. And I like using that story, though. Because a lot of Christians think God gives us these rules so we won't have any fun. Mm -hmm. No, no. God gives us rules because they protect us from self-destruction. And the story of Daedalus and Icarus will remind you that Daedalus didn't do it to stop Icarus having fun. He did it to preserve his life. And when we don't follow the rules, we are putting ourselves in danger. So there's an example, Michael, where a pagan myth can help us understand a deeper Christian truth that maybe your children won't listen to it if you tell them the same old Bible stories. Oh, I know that. That's Sunday school. Tell them a different story. Defamiliarize it, to use a fancy word. And then suddenly, oh, now maybe I understand something I didn't understand before. It's almost like in a world where we have less and less people to look up to, it's so important to have heroes in stories to look up to because they exemplify virtue. So, or at least heroes are cautionary tales like Icarus. To, to me, when it comes to virtue, probably my biggest hero is someone who's not even a believer yet, and that's Jordan Peterson. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's calling these young men again to clean their room, by which he really means get your life together, be leaders. Be, you know, I mean, basically, you know, the, the, all their fights been beaten out of the boys. It's crazy. Right. And, and, uh, Jordan Peterson stands up and just has simple courage to just speak truth. Mm -hmm. Now, if you really watch his interviews, he certainly seems on the road to faith. I believe right. his daughter has become a believer. Uh, he's on there, but it, it takes somebody like that. Right? We, we, we need someone else to stand up. Right. And uh, a, a Christian today might be put to shame by Muslims who pray five times a day, and we can right. barely pray one time a day, right? right? We're, we're sort of put to shame, but we need these people who have the courage to stand up and live for virtue. And 
probably the worst thing that's happened in the last five years is what happened to Ravi Zacharias, Zacharias. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't want to think about that. This, this incredible apologist, you know, I mean, it reminds us that we all have feet of clay, but it also reminds us that, you know, we need accountability structures, you know, right. we need all that sort of stuff. Um, but, you know, th- there are people that are, are, are trying to stand up and, and, and speak the truth, but it, it's, there are a lot of Christians that, you know, that are just kind of caving in. They, mm-hmm. they won't speak the truth. And they just give in, and they just, you know, uh, you know, ac- over accommodate everything. Yeah. And we lost our moral center, and we need to be reminded of these sort of heroes of the faith again. Yeah. Sad thing is, we have to turn to Marvel Cinematic Universe to give us any role models, right? I mean, it's it's amazing. We we get to the end of Endgame, and the most narcissistic of all ends up being the scapegoat, right? He lays down his life of Iron Man. It's yeah. amazing to look at his story arc. Uh, and and they're they're still doing it, but why are we turning to superheroes? Because those are the new myths. That's the closest we have to a myth. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we still come back to these virtues, to self sacrifice, to courage, to a real sense of justice. And so, I don't know that that's where we go now. Is 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 superheroes? I'm not sure where else we can go. Right. We're gonna win the story by having the best story. Mm-hmm. If we can tell the best narrative the best story, the true story of redemption, right? One of the biggest problems with cancel culture is it is a culture of no forgiveness. You can never be forgiven. You said something when you were 10, it doesn't make a difference. Mm-hmm. There is forgiveness, there's no mercy, there's no redemption. Uh, we've got a much better story, okay? We've got a story of redemption, of creation, fall, redemption, reconciliation, and glorification, right? I mean, it, it's it's wonderful that, that, that and, and we need to tell the meta narrative, as they call it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Lewis and Tolkien told that meta narrative. You know, let, let me give you a good example of this, Micah. We have we have probably the best Renaissance festival in Houston. Uh, just incredibly well done. And I go to the Renaissance festival every year, get dressed up and stuff. And I certainly started to notice that you know what? As I look at the other people at the fair, eighty percent of these people, I would disagree with them about everything from uh, from family to sexuality to truth to beauty to everything and yet they're here these are people who would disagree with everything that the catholic middle ages stood for and yet they're here right because a lot of them are crazy folks why are they here i think that we understand that there is a beauty to goodness and truth there's even a beauty to hierarchy how about that hmm. that there is a beauty to this and our culture says no but people keep being drawn back to it and Narnia and Middle Earth are both medieval places, uh, and there's they're, they're even monarchies, but a monarchy that gives you meaning and purpose. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that people are still drawn there tells me that we need to tell the story. We need to get that story out so they can understand, and they'll be drawn to it. That's a great point. I, I think hierarchy especially is a really big one that I think people have trouble with. But when you see at the end of Lord of the Rings, I believe it's in the book and the movie, but where Aragorn is king and the hobbits bow to him and he lifts them back up. And it's there's a hierarchy there, right? They're his right. subjects. He is the king. But he lifts them up at the same time. And like, man, the picture of Jesus Christ there where he is 100% over us and yet he's lifting us up. And that, oh man, hierarchy is beautiful because yeah. when you're beneath someone, they can lift you. And that's what Christ that's true, does yeah. for us. That's hey, awesome. You know, Lewis said it, okay? If if we don't have you know real kings and real knights and these heroes to be our role models, then we'll just make 
sports legends and rap artists, and there's an oxymoron, rap artists, and and you know these people, even even criminals, will make you know uh, you know criminal number one or something like that, gangster number one. So it's, it's natural, you know, if if we don't drink the good stuff, we're going to drink poison. Basically, is what's happening. And so we need it. One of the worst things that ever happened, was it Charles Barkley that said, I'm not a role model? Right. Yeah. It was like the beginning of, of the end. Mm-hmm. No longer are they understanding that their job is to be a role model for these young people. Mm-hmm. The real problem, uh, Micah, is that the public schools haven't exactly thrown out virtue. They've thrown out the real virtues and substituted them with pseudo-virtues. Egalitarianism, mm-hmm. inclusivism, tolerance, multiculturalism. Egality. These are not evil things, but this is not the center of virtue. Right? They're all negative virtues anyway. Tolerance doesn't mean I'm going to treat everyone as if they were made in the image of God. Tolerance means I'll overlook your sin if you overlook my sin. Right. That's all it means. Environmentalism doesn't mean being good stewards of nature as we were meant to be. It means nature is more important than human beings. Right. Glorification I mean, we, of nature. Multiculturalism doesn't mean that we should respect and honor all different cultures, it means we should throw out Western culture and demonize. You know, again, we need real virtues that will be in us and that will give us strength. We need it. And some of this can be so hard, I think, for people where we live in this world and we are inundated with things every day that kind of uh, weaken us and don't exactly endear us to being virtuous or we see people it's almost like we have we all have the david problem with why do the wicked prosper and it can get so tiring but it, we're also discussing very broad topic i mean virtue is huge and it can sometimes yeah. feel a little daunting a little bit overwhelming and the bible to me does this often where it's so intricate there's so many things that i'm expected to do i'll never be perfect i'll never be righteous <laughs> in, in the way i'd like to be uh, at least until I'm made that way by Jesus Christ. Uh, but with this overwhelming nature, the Bible also has little key phrases in there that kind of sum up huge portions of text, like uh, in Micah 6.8, do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with right. the Lord your God. Or the the greatest commandment, or, or the two great commandments, right? right? Love God and love your neighbor. These kind of are, are like pinpoints that wrap up huge love things. Is, love God is the first tablet of the law. Love your neighbor is the second tablet of the law. It's right. Those two things. So with all of this, all of these broad things that we're talking about, could you um, maybe give something for people to take home so they can feel like, you know, because it, it is hard to stand up in this world. It is hard to remain virtuous. It is hard to feel like it's worth it. But is there something that you can give to our audience to just say, this is the thing you need to remember uh, keep strong yeah. in that well, thing. For, I, I don't know who the first person was that said this, but you ever heard the phrase, do the next good thing? It's, I'm going to change the world. Just do the next good thing. Do the good and right thing now. One thing I mentioned, that guy, Rod Dreher, he, the phrase comes from Solzhenitsyn, live not by lies. Okay, look, you may not have the courage to speak up, but don't tell lies. So don't say anything that's false. That's a good way to start. Hmm. The next thing to do is, okay, maybe you're at a secular workplace and you don't have the courage to speak up about Christ. But you know what you can do? When the guy makes fun of Christians, don't laugh along with them to fit in, okay? Don't get all self-righteous, but don't – it's a little thing. I want to start with little things. And look, I, I, I teach at a Christian university. 
I'm not going to judge you because I have so, so they're not going to fire me, right? right? Others are in a very difficult place where you can't see, but, but that's the beginning, okay? Uh, the beginning is do what is courageous. And what does courage mean? Stick to your post. You're scared. You want to run away, but stick to your post. Whatever that means, whatever post you're at, stick to your post and don't break away. That's the beginning. Say positive things. When you see somebody else do something virtuous, say, well done. I will tell you the best uh, show on TV may be ending. It's called Call the Midwife. Uh, and it's just beautiful. It's, it's on PBS. If you get a chance to see it. And the people there are always affirming each other, not in a silly, sentimental way, right. but somebody's done something good. And you say, well, of course, that comes from the Bible anyway. Well done. And encourage them. Don't be a discourager. Be an encourager. And when you see a non-Christian do something right, edify them and say, well done. You know, that, this is what bothers me. We've gotten so polarized that if you're on the right, you can't see anything good on the left. Mm -hmm. And if you're on the left, you can't see anything good on the right. That's not a way to look at the world. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's, you know, let, let, let's look at when, when our enemies are doing something good, emphasize that. And hopefully they'll do more of it, but don't, we, we just do this too much. And, and the next thing to do is stop being envious and resentful and start being thankful. Get into a habit, start by thanking God, and then thank other people. Maybe after you thank God, maybe thank your parents, right? Thank your, your siblings or whatever. Mm. But we have to get ourselves so we are not only the people that are not naysayers, we are the people that express gratitude and express thankfulness and are positive in that sense. Let us be those people. That's simple, but that's going to change the world. Right. And it's so actionable as well, which I, I really yeah. do appreciate because it, it can be hard to stand up for what you believe in. But I think you're making the point that just because you don't feel the courage to stand up doesn't mean you have to allow yourself to be pushed over either. And I, I just think that's really, really important. Well, I really appreciate you joining us today. I have one last question for you because I had to nerd out just a little oh, bit. Oh, let's go for it. Okay. So. I think it's it's a hot topic as far as Lord of the Rings goes anyways. When Gandalf is on the edge of that cliff and he says, fly, you fools. Uh, do you think this was a secret message to them to take the eagles all the way to Mordor? Because that's a uh, loophole that's people a keep word. saying. What do you, you think you in your seen? professional opinion? Uh, absolutely not. But that's really cool. <laughs> what's, what's really cool, have you ever seen uh, that little thing on YouTube, how the Lord of the Rings should have ended? And I, what I haven't, no. It's great. They, uh, Frodo and all, they get on an eagle and they blindfold the eagle who's flying to Mordor. And then, uh, um, what's his name? Aragorn literally moons, say, hey, Sauron, and he moons him. And the eye turns and then the eagle comes over uh, and, and Frodo's there and he drops the ring and boom, and it's done. You know, <laughs> it, it would have been a lot easier to do it. Such that. an easier way. Absolutely. But isn't it wonderful that, that Gandalf is such a real person? He, you know, he's so, but he's also crotchety. Yeah. Lock fools right i love it a fool he is but he's an honest fool i love it all of the two why don't you throw yourself in the next time and save us all the trouble i mean yeah. he, you know, he's a crotchety old professor is what he is really right. by the way are you excited or terrified about uh amazon's coming uh lord of the ring so so excited i i read silmarillion i've read every i just actually this year finished all of the works of J.R.R. tolkien wow good and so i'm really looking forward to just seeing what they do with it. I don't know. I they hope can't it's ruin be it good. for me. I mean, you know what? If they said it's going to be, it's going to take 
place in the second age. It's going to be about the rise and fall of Numenor mm-hmm. and the, the One Ring in Middle Earth. We'll see. You know, I, I yeah. mean, I'm you know, I'm still you know not not sure what it is we're seeing in the picture that they released. Right. It's like Valinor, but they're they're gone from Valinor. Right. So I'm not sure exactly what that's supposed to be, but we'll see. But they uh, can't ruin the books for me, so that's okay. Yeah, I, I hope it'd be good. I mean, really, the Silmarillion is almost more suited for a miniseries than a movie mm, anyway. Though right. I would like a Baron and Luthien movie oh, standalone. I yeah. wish Peter Jackson would do that and make that movie standalone, but that would we'll be see. incredible. We'll see what happens. I would love good. to see it too. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I really do appreciate your time. We'll have to do a whole other episode just where we nerd out about stuff because oh, there we it's, go. We it's about way Wars, too tempting. Star Trek and Lord of the Rings and everything else we want. Where can our listeners find your stuff? Yeah, Amazon.com and type in Lewis Marcos. You'll see my name, M-A-R-K-O-S. It's a Greek name. And my Amazon author page has all 20, I got 22 books there. And also if you go to YouTube and type in my name, I have a YouTube channel with all sorts of free videos and things. Uh, my whole class on Narnia and Lord of the Rings. I got stuff up there as well. So that's the best way to do it. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. I really do appreciate your time. And I hope that you found this interview interesting. And I hope it's inspired you to pick up some of this literature, uh, not just from Dr. Marcos, but also from different writers all throughout history to try and find virtue in them, find heroes and cautionary tales, and to enact virtue in your life. Because I know it can be difficult, but it's well worthwhile. So thank you again for tuning in. And until next time, keep on reading your Bibles, keep on thinking critically about them, and keep on applying the truths that we learn here to your lives. Thank you.